0: NBC News reported that the United States intelligence helped the Ukraine sink the Russian flagship Moscow on April 14th. The network also reported on April 26th that American intelligence assisted Ukraine protect its air defense systems and shoot down a Russian transport plane carrying hundreds of troops. And the New York Times wrote about the U.S. providing intelligence to Ukraine that helped their military kill Russian generals. The Biden administration has denied much of this. But Jay, do you believe the administration? And should the public and the press even know about these things?
1: Well, that's really interesting. First of all, I believe absolutely nothing that comes out of the administration. You can tell when they're lying. And of course, the old joke, their lips are moving. And I am not would not normally favor sharing intelligence, though you gave an example, a couple examples, that it worked to the benefit of the uh, Ukraine armies. And so I think there are times when it's okay and time when it's unwise. My general opinion would be that this administration uh, does too much of sharing, too much of tipping their hands. I mean, it goes back to everything in Afghanistan, really. Everything that we've been doing for quite some time, even before this administration, that we uh, we let people know what we're doing. N- not generally a, a very good idea.
0: Well, I get the impression they they did this because they wanted to look good to the public. But from an intelligence perspective, you have to question whether any of this information should be getting out.
1: Yes, I I would totally agree with this. And I'm really excited to have our guest this week, Senator Robert Kasten, who's got many, many years of experience in this uh, 12 years in the Senate for the state of Wisconsin, working very closely with uh, Ronald Reagan. I think he'll be able to uh, answer questions that uh, you and I normally would not uh, be privy to. So go ahead, Tom, and introduce Bob.
0: Okay, sure. Our guest today is Washington DC-based Bob Kasten Jr. After serving as Wisconsin State Senator, Bob represented Wisconsin in both the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives, providing leadership in international matters and business concerns. Bob played a pivotal role in the development of U.S. humanitarian and military assistance programs, including foreign military sales. So that's really relevant to our show today. In 1985, President Reagan appointed Senator Kasten to the President's Export Council. Bob's staying totally up to date with this whole issue of military and foreign assistance, that sort of thing. He's actually president of Caston & Company, an international business consulting firm with offices in Washington, D.C. and West Bend, Wisconsin. He's also a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So welcome to the show, Bob.
3: Thank you very much. Good to be with you.
0: Yeah, it's great. Well, Bob, I have a
1: somewhat strange and unusual uh, question, but I'm guessing it's on the, uh, the lips of many of our listeners. Why are folks continuing to call this the Biden administration? I'm convinced he plays no part other than the puppet manipulated by others. Uh, describe how you think the system works, you know, and who actually is running it.
3: Well, Jerry, I think most certainly most Republicans and independents, but a growing number of Democrats have the same concern that you do about who's really running the Biden administration. And more and more, it's clear that because of age or infirmity, or Mm. frankly, because he just might not be interested in the details, uh, it's not Joe Biden that's running the Biden administration. At one point, there was a thought that Kamala Harris might be playing a role moving the administration to the left. But it's clear now, and it was clear given maybe six or eight weeks into the administration, that Camilla Harris was incompetent. So she's not really a player at all. So you go back and look to who are the people that are really making the decisions. And I think you come down to two or three people, the Secretary of State and a number of the people that were there during the Obama years. They kind of all graduate into higher jobs at the National Security Council or the or the uh, State Department. But you have to put a special circle, I think, around Susan Rice, who has been a kind of a Democratic liberal Washington insider. Uh, she's been part of a number of the last Democratic administrations. Uh, she's clearly a, a dedicated liberal. Some people would say socialist. And it seems that she and her staff are having more and more influence. The other part of this is that the cabinet, unlike other cabinets, the cabinet is particularly uninvolved in most of the decisions, the policy decisions that are being made. In other words, they'll make a decision about COVID, or they'll make a decision about energy, or they'll make a decision about whatever, and then bring in uh, Jennifer Granholm or whoever the appropriate secretary would be and they would be part of the press conference possibly but not part of the development of the strategy the cabinet was picked because they wanted basically a socially correct photo of the cabinet they wanted to have all these different identity groups represented in their cabinet they were not picked for their ability to work out policy issues Mm -hmm. so you end up with a weak cabinet you end up with a weak president and certainly a weak vice president And that gives extra power to some of these entrenched bureaucrats. Susan Rice isn't the only one, but one of the ones that uh, a number of people continue to point to in terms of who is really making the decisions in the Biden administration.
0: So it's the deep state controlling him really from the background.
3: Well, the deep state is a whole nother question. And it's a very, very important question. The answer is yes, the deep state is having a big influence on President Biden and his policies. But the the deep state is more complicated in that it includes the CIA and the State Department primarily. Unfortunately, more and more, it includes the Defense Department as well. And these are people that have a particular point of view that isn't necessarily the, the America first, strong national defense, lead by strength kind of position that I believe we need and I think most Americans believe we need in foreign and defense policy. Uh, The deep state is kind of in it for its own power, if you will, and also uh, the idea that somehow uh, if we just make enough compromises, everyone's gonna get along in this world and we don't have to continue to have all the money spent on defense and intelligence and other areas which they basically want to reduce.
1: Well, let's move to the Ukraine war in a couple of ways. I want to ask you a two-part question. One, we seem to be very open as to our support, what we're doing to help in Ukraine, what we're not doing, which is, say, I think we, we share everything that we're doing in Ukraine with everybody, the public, the rest of the world. And with that in mind, Where do you think the war will be a year from now?
3: Well, let me first of all, just make a brief comment on what you and Tom were talking about earlier. I believe that intelligence, intelligence gathering, the CIA, whether other intelligence gathering agencies, whether it's electronic intelligence or other kinds of intelligence, including human intelligence, called human intelligence gathering, I believe that we're making a mistake right now. And it's been something that's been growing for the last eight or 10 years, certainly got worse during Obama, in which we're sharing too much of our intelligence with the public. I believe that we can share intelligence with our allies and that we should be sharing that intelligence with our allies confidentially. And that if our allies are unable to keep secrets, then we can't share our intelligence with that particular ally. Uh, the government that I think do, does it closest to right, right now is the government of Israel, where they simply let the world go on and uh, deny that certain things have taken place, or simply don't comment on important changes or on important actions that have taken place. And I think that we make a mistake. Number one, because the uh, some of the, the this administration, this liberal administration, wants to wants to demonstrate that it's not kind of as uh, as liberal as it is, and as easy on, you know, it, it, it's it's not a piece. To, it's not a strength. A strength, kind of administration. It's a very weak administration with a weak foreign policy. So they're trying to demonstrate somehow a more robust foreign policy by leaking information on intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if I were making the decision, I would not have claimed it was U.S. help that sunk that. Russian ship in the Black Sea. I just would have said the Black Sea the ship in the Black Sea blew up. If I were involved I would not have shared some of the intelligence with regard to the things that we knew and the things that we said prior to our disastrous departure from Afghanistan. All the information that we gave I think it was it was terrible. Plus in the process of talking about some of this some of these issues We, uh, knowingly or not, we, from time to time, disclose sources and methods of intelligence gathering that put our allies at risk, our allies' lives at risk, and even our own agents. And uh, not necessarily putting agents at risk, but putting it in, let's, for example, say we've got a, a certain way of listening to a certain series of phone calls. And all of a sudden, something from that Series of phone calls gets published in the in the paper, or some people start talking about it. A human life might not might not be involved, but the person that will immediately start to figure out that it's this series of phones and this series of phone lines and this particular geographic location, and now we've got to shut that down because the Americans are listening. Mm-hmm. And time and time again, we make the mistake. Of wanting to brag about our so-called intelligence gathering at the expense of intelligence gathering in the future. Many years ago, up until 10 years ago, the House and the Senate had no intelligence committee. There was no official intelligence committee. And the intelligence committee, whether it's run now by Adam Schiff or whatever other Democrat liberals you want to talk about, the intelligence committee has been some some kind of a way to the to the uh, Sunday talk show programs because they introduce somebody, somebody as chairman of the Intelligence Committee. And then he normally tries to come very close to the edge or maybe even goes over the edge, as some senators have in the past, in terms of revealing something having to do with sources and uses of intelligence gathering just because he wants to make the news on the Sunday talk show. I don't believe the the House and the Senate Intelligence Committees serve any meaningful purpose. In the past, there was no Intelligence Committee. There was the group of four who were in charge of the intelligence. It was always paid for through the Defense Appropriations Committees, both the House and the Senate. So there was a chairman of the Defense appropriation Committee that followed it in terms of the money. But when there was a question about intelligence, the group of four met. And that was the Speaker of the House, the, the Republican leader, the Speaker of the the uh, Majority Leader of the Senate, and the Republican leaders. So today it would be that that, uh, that Schumer and McConnell and Pelosi and McCarthy would be called into a into a meeting. They would be called in a, in a secret place in the Capitol, and the four of them would listen to whatever the intelligence community, the Director of the CIA, wants to tell them. They would make a decision. They would not even talk about the meeting being held, and they would make a decision and life would go on. There was mm-hmm. nobody showing up for a hearing. There was no big schedule of intelligence committee activity. And there certainly was no, not one of those four people who showed up on the Sunday talk yeah. show to try that to makes, make publicity for themselves. Yeah. And this has to, this is so wrong. be. makes so much sense. Yeah, no. And
1: this, this, is thing, the way it, it's clear. this is the yeah. way it has See.
3: been. This is the way it has been. And I believe it's the way we should return.
1: I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, it's the Sunday shows, news shows, where the various people in the House and Senate get a chance to show off, as you said, to show off by being on the inside and knowing stuff. And And meanwhile,
3: they put American, or in this case, possibly Ukrainian, lives at risk. No question. No question. All right, let's go
1: to the war. Give our listeners your crystal balls to where this war is gonna be a year from now. That's way down. I'm not asking you <laughs> two months or six months, but seems like things are going to have happened a year from now.
3: I think your question is, is impossible to know because there's so many variables. Point number one is I think that right this minute, the war has shifted in that the Russians have started to get themselves more organized along the Eastern border in the old Damascus and the different places where they had already made some incursions. I strongly agree with the Ukrainians and with Zelensky that they should never allow this war to end without taking back the territory that the Russians have taken over the last few years, which includes Crimea and includes those Eastern provinces. So I think all of Ukraine, has to be returned to Ukraine before we can have a just end of this war. Now, the way the war must end is that somehow or another, the Russian military forces uh, have to be defeated or so completely demoralized and and out of, out of supplies, out of people, out of ammunition, you name it, that they just simply have to retreat. You can argue that there also could be some things that could happen inside of Russia with the political system. You can argue that uh, possibly Putin is sick and that he doesn't have long to live. You, there are a number of things that could you know, change all this, but right this minute, we have to be working for a way to defeat the, the Russians militarily. And that means we need to step up our supply of, uh, of defensive uh, weaponry uh, to Ukraine. We did it too little, too late. We're getting caught up now. But I believe that we're still too little, too late, and we need to increase our help to the people of of Ukraine. The question about where we finally end up, I think, is is really tough. But I think where we finally end up is with a, a Ukraine led by Zelensky or whoever their elected leader would be to follow him that would be an independent Ukraine and ideally a member of NATO. I'm pleased that Finland and Sweden are now going to be joining NATO. I'm pleased with the fact that even though it might not have been their understanding in the beginning, (laughs) the Russians by mistake have unified NATO in a way that it's never been unified before. And I'll give Biden some credit for that too. But I think most of the credit frankly belongs to Putin for bringing NATO together as it has come together. But we need to do more. There are meetings that have been going on over the last few days they're going on today and tomorrow, and I believe that we need to do more for NATO and we need to do more for the United States. But military victory is what we need to seek. I'm tired of learning about, I mean, who talked about an off-ramp for Hitler? Who talked about a nice way out for Hitler? Who talked Mm. about an acceptable conclusion? Don't talk this way. Don't think about these weapons because this might not be acceptable to Putin is what we hear every other day. Mm -hmm. We're not waiting for Putin's acceptance. We're waiting for a win that will lead to Putin's defeat.
1: Well, I have some information on that. I uh, have a colleague in Germany on the inside of their government, and I spoke with him earlier this week. Even he is amazed at the support that Germany is giving uh, Ukraine and that he's not ever seen you know, in recent decades, Germany step out in an international way uh, with such a positive message. That that bodes well, I, I think, that if Germany is coming forward, all of Europe will continue to mobilize against Russia in every way they can in the
3: Ukraine. I think you're right. The other thing I think you could say is Germany finally coming forward after making mistakes under Angela Merkel for many many years not only with no n- very low spending on defense but also their mistakes with regard to becoming completely dependent for energy on the soviet union and these pipelines but the movement is clear and it happened in germany certainly uh, you you got to look at, at finland i mean think about finland uh, as as you know as as, as basically an independent wanting to be a completely unaligned country, now aggressively joining NATO. I mean, Mm -hmm. the change is happening all across Europe, and it's happening because of Putin, and it's happening because people finally have woken up that this man is dangerous, that Russia and their aspirations to have the old Russian Empire is very real. And if we don't stop it now, it's going to get worse, not better, and it's going to be more difficult to stop if we start fighting our war in Poland or start fighting our war in the uh, Baltic states. We've got to fight our war and win it in
0: Ukraine. What about the concerns about Russia actually using their strategic military capabilities against NATO? I mean, this is surely one of the things that's in the back of Biden's mind.
3: You said strategic military capability, and I think you mean strategic military capability, including the possible use of nuclear weapons, we have to say those words and we have to recognize that this could be a problem. And it's not gonna be less of a problem if we're fighting this battle in Poland in a year or two. It's not gonna be less of a problem if we're fighting this battle in in Latvia or Lithuania or whatever. We need to recognize this is a problem. We need Mm -hmm. to be prepared to win a, a, a nuclear war and we can, and we will. And uh, we've got, you know, the basic idea of of mutually assured destruction is is a horrible set of ideas and a horrible set of of, of war theory, but it's there. And Mm -hmm. Russia has to know that if it attempts to begin even tactical and nuclear weapons, we will respond and we will respond aggressively. Mm -hmm. And we, we cannot, we cannot sit there and worry, oh my gosh, if we just, you know, go over this river, take down this bridge, then that's going to make Putin angry, and all of a sudden he might use tactical nuclear weapons. Okay, that's part of the war, Mm -hmm. but we will not, we should not be making decisions with the idea that, watch out, this might make Putin angry, and this might entice him to use tactical nuclear weapons. He will be the big loser if he starts a nuclear war.
0: Mm-hmm. It does make President Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative look pretty, pretty smart at, at this time, doesn't it?
3: You know, there's so many things we can look to Ronald Reagan about. Uh, it's it's almost, it's almost comical to look at Joe Biden as he's been speaking to our country a little bit about inflation and about COVID and about a couple of other issues when he's taken that 15 or 20 minutes in the evening to make a speech from the Oval Office. And compare that, you know, here's Biden mumbling and making mistakes over his teleprompter and not really making any, you know, nothing is visionary, nothing is inspiring. This is President Biden in a way at his worst. And think just a few years ago, it's not just a few years ago, but we can think back of the, of the kind of speeches and the kind of presentations that we saw from President Reagan. You can't compare the two. Biden comes up so short on this this whole set of comparisons, not only with Reagan, but also with other presidents. Mm -hmm. Um, He is the worst president we've had in our lifetimes. And it's very, very dangerous for our country. I mean, look, gas prices, inflation, you name the whole list. He's very, very dangerous for our country. And he's dangerous for the free world. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I still remember Ronald Reagan's speech after the Challenger disaster. I mean, that was perhaps the best speech I've ever heard from a politician anywhere in the world. I mean, he was a master of that sort of thing.
3: It was a treat to be with him over a number of years in in the early 1980s. It's just very, very unfortunate that we've ended up in a position where Biden is just no possible comparison.
1: What impact, if any, does the war have on the midterm elections, which I'm incredibly excited about? I never want to see time pass fast, certainly not at my age. I don't want to see the next four months race by, but I'm certainly excited to see a sea change in the House of Representatives, less so in the Senate. But my opinion is uh, that the war will have no impact. Uh, on the election at all. What's your thought?
3: I agree that the war in Ukraine, as it is now, will have a little or no impact. I think it's likely that we're going to be in this kind of stalemate situation. We shouldn't really use the word stalemate because Ukrainians are dying as we're speaking. But I think we're going to be in this kind of situation that we're in right this moment, uh, with neither side really taking the, the lead. I agree with you. I think that the Ukraine war as it is now will not make a difference. It was the the horrible departure from Afghanistan that set Biden on the negative track that he's been on since that withdrawal from Afghanistan. That withdrawal from Afghanistan, it affected his, his approval ratings, but it also affected his ability to lead. And that was the beginning of the downfall that Joe Biden is still on. It was the beginning of the, of the downward slope, if you will, of the roller coaster that we're still on. It was the withdrawal from Afghanistan that kicked the negatives up. I don't see something like that happening in the Ukraine that's going to kick the negatives. It's hard to think they can keep going down, but I think they will probably keep sneaking down. But I, I don't see anything happening in Afghanistan that could kick Biden's negatives up that could help him, could make him more popular, could make it more likely that Democrats win the House of Representatives or that the Democratic Party does well. The kind of shame of all this is that, you know, all we can do this fall is elect a Republican Senate and a Republican House of Representatives, and we're still going to be left with two more years of Joe Biden. It's too bad that that won't change because it limits the kind of changes that we can do, and certainly it does nothing to the uh, leadership.
1: I have two thoughts on that. One, I think the, all the terrible things going on with this amazingly liberal administration is doing as much damage to the Democratic Party as it is to the country. I mean, our gas prices, the groceries, everything has gone up ridiculously. And I think the average American is aware of it. And I think that as we take the House in large numbers, I personally think it's going to be between 40 and 60 vote majority. And I know others who probably know more about it than I or don't even think I'm optimistic enough. But I think people voting for people with a D next to their name is going to shrink a terrible organization doing so much damage to the public what are your thoughts about the impact of all this on the democratic party itself
3: well, i think without question the democratic party is losing in almost any category looked to but importantly for elections and importantly for the the growth of the of the republican party there're just two particular constituencies that have seen dramatic change in the last 6 months the first is the Hispanic constituency, and we're now electing Republicans in places where Republicans have never served for many, many years. We're electing Hispanic Republicans. I mean, this is 50, 100 years. Some of these congressional seats in Texas, for example, have never been Republican, and now they're becoming Republican. And the other thing that, that uh, is changing is the participation and the, uh, the growth of Republican strength within the Black community. And mm-hmm. uh, that's growing. I mean, who would have thunk it, right? Amazing that the Black community can, is, cares, gives a damn, and they're willing to vote because they care about law and order. They care about crime in the streets. They care about the people being murdered every weekend in Chicago. Those people are saying, we can't let our neighborhoods go to hell the way they've gone to hell under white liberal Democrat leadership. So mm-hmm. whether it's San Francisco or whether it's Los Angeles or whether it's Chicago, you're starting to see a big change. Much of that change is uh, being led by Black people who are becoming more conservative and who are becoming more active in the political process. So Mm -hmm. these two groups are groups that we've come up short in over recent history. And Mm -hmm. we're now starting to make the changes we need. And we're getting a group of strong Hispanic candidates. Nevada would be an example in which we... uh, We're really starting to make some big changes, not only at the congressional level, but I'm talking about the state legislature, the mayors, the city councils, even the school boards. Watch those elections. We've watched them out in California. Those elections are changing dramatically. And it's why exactly what you said, Jay, that the election for the House of Representatives this fall has the opportunity of being a a, a very, very strong election for the
0: Republicans. Mm -hmm. Well, we have to go for a commercial break now. That's a great positive note to end the first half of our show with Bob Kasten. He was both a representative of the Wisconsin State in the U.S. Senate House of Representatives. In the second part of our show, I'm hoping we can talk about what role NATO should be playing. Overall, the Russians are saying it's an offensive organization. People on our side are saying it's defensive. is Dr. Peter McCullough. Do you know there's no other condition that I'm aware of where vitamins and supplements make such a big difference than COVID-19? We have an abundance of data that we need to be replete with a variety of micronutrients, and that includes vitamins, minerals, and other substances our bodies need. I rely on Healthy Cell Super Boost. That's Immune Super Boost. It's a, a gel pack that can be taken every day. I like to do it before I exercise and before I go out. It's a wonderful supplement. It gives me the immune super boost that I need. Go to HealthyCell.com, use the promotional code OUTLOUD and get a discount on your first order. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio.
2: Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a -a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. It tastes great, comes in a convenient squeeze gel pack, and it's more natural, too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
0: You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com.
2: It's summertime. Ready for your vacation to the beach, the lake, or the mountains? But what about your accommodations? Ever wonder what germs were left behind by the previous guests? Kathy G. from Tulsa says the Genesis Fogger gives her peace of mind and confidence when traveling. With Genesis, she knows that the air and surfaces in her vacation rental are free of bacteria and viruses left behind by the previous occupants. Visit genesisfoggercom forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Folger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next.
0: We're back with Washington, D.C.-based Bob Kasten, Jr., who served as a Wisconsin state senator and also in both the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. So, Bob, can you tell us what you see as NATO's appropriate role? The Russians are saying now in various media outlets that NATO's an aggressive organization, whereas people on our side are saying, no, no, it's a defensive organization. How do you see NATO's role in this event and generally speaking?
3: Well, I think you have to just look at what's in front of us. Look at it with your own eyes, and what do you see? You see a NATO that has been uh, nothing but defensive since the time that it was founded. And you see a Soviet Union, a former Soviet Union, a Russia now, uh, that has been aggressive, not yet into NATO countries, and that's important, but aggressive into Crimea, aggressive into Georgia, aggressive into Ukraine right this minute, and putting other countries, including some NATO countries, including the Baltic states, at risk. I absolutely reject this idea that we somehow, by having NATO being involved in, if you will, the, the geographic proximity of Russia, of the former Soviet Union, that we somehow pushed Putin into believing that NATO is somehow going to attack him, and therefore, he was doing the right thing by reaching out and trying to start to attack uh, Ukraine before Ukraine was going to attack him. That just is it's just simply not true. There's nothing in history that would, reco- that would uh, indicate that it's true, and it has nothing to do with anything that NATO has ever done before.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't actually even see the Ukraine attacking Russia. So, I mean, no. say NATO's aggressive, that's pretty stretching the truth. But Russia
3: is saying that they're worried about attacks coming from places like Ukraine. They're absolutely wrong. Well, I'd like to move the conversation to an
1: article I wrote recently. I developed a term, the American oligarch. I think all of our listeners are aware of the term oligarch for Russian billionaires And they are cronies of Putin who make a lot of money by having things that the government does to help them. And then they in turn support the government. It's a quid pro quo. And I think everyone knows the term oligarch essentially means a billionaire crony of the government. I think we have our oligarchs here. I've come to the realization that Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and all the the billionaires that run the, the media in this country, Michael Bloomberg, that they are American oligarchs that get favors from our government that helps them to get very, very rich, and that they are themselves collectively a power in the United States. And I've introduced a a very new idea that many people find to be an an epiphany. Why do so many billionaires appear to become leftists, (laughs) socialists, if not communists? I figured out why. It's human nature to want something you do not have. And if you are a billionaire, there's nothing in that column that costs money that you can't have. So what do they have to live for? What do they have to seek for? Well, it's power. And they know they cannot gain power over the people in a capitalist government. And they recognize, looking back historically, that socialist communist movements, while they all fail in helping the population, they all succeeded in making strong men rulers, whether it's Venezuela or Cuba or Russia, power is available. And I believe that is why our billionaires, who I'm now calling oligarchs, move to the left. Your thoughts?
3: I completely agree with you that the motivation of people like you mentioned, Jeff Bezos, but the one that particularly just because he's been at it so long that, that I've tried to follow a little bit is George Soros. But George Soros, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, there's a, a whole group of these people. And yes, they have money and they're seeking power and they're seeking influence. And unfortunately, they're seeking to move public opinion to the left and are successful somewhat by taking over media companies and by being involved. And Jeff Bezos buys the Washington Post. Soros has been particularly i think damaging in his huge financial contributions, particularly to attorney generals and to to state uh, district attorneys and and others in the in the legal side of politics and These are the people that have given up on sentencing criminals and who have given up on putting people into jail and who have given up on punishment that fits the crime. Soros has been the last two or, two or three election cycles has been absolutely horrible with the amount of money he's been involved in in those, in those places. The other point of this is that in the last election, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was particularly involved in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, a number of key states in which he formed a foundation and the foundation contributed money to individual cities they said to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we would like to give Milwaukee, Wisconsin a grant of $5 million or whatever it was. In the case of Milwaukee, I think it was 7,500,000. 7, mm-hmm. But the, the, uh, we will give you a grant uh, in order to improve your quote, democracy, end quote. In other words, to get more people to vote. So you give this to an urban area like Milwaukee In Wisconsin, they did it in Milwaukee, Madison, Green Bay, and Kenosha. Large amounts of money given to the city. And then they sent in a few people to, if you will, work with the money that Zuckerberg had contributed. Well, guess whose vote they were turning out? (laughs) Guess, guess Guess who was coming to vote? And they did this across the country. So we know this is going on. We now are trying to become more involved in it. The other thing that, that I'm particularly interested, Jay, in your thoughts about this, because some of these people have become rich by working in business and in, in investment banking, others. Other people are becoming rich in large companies or large areas of commerce in which the government is playing a bigger and bigger role toward subsidies. This is something you know more about than I do, but there's no question that the that the so-called you know, new world energy programs, the uh, fossil fuel free world is based on subsidy right now. And these same millionaires and billionaires and oligarchs, if you will, are receiving more and more subsidies through the government, through some of these kinds of companies. Um, It's happening more and more. I think we're seeing the beginning of it now, but it concerns me that there's a role in this mix of government subsidies for so-called socially correct kind of industries, which can be very damaging overall to our economy. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, you're, you're exactly right. And listeners to this show have heard us talk for well over a year now of the absurdity of trying to do away with fossil fuels in order to have some impact on the temperature of the earth. Man-caused climate change is, without a doubt, the biggest fraud ever perpetrated on society. And it's only been able to keep alive with the subsidies that you described. There would be no solar industry. There would be no wind industry. Frankly, there would be no electric car industry without government subsidies. Because these things in large numbers make no sense at all. Now, they're trying to talk about net zero decarbonizing the world. It can never happen. We will be operating on coal, natural gas, and petroleum for the rest of everybody's lives in, this, in our audience, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. None of this can ever happen. All that can happen is punishing the public when they run out of energy trying to support our economy with wind and solar. It cannot be done. So it's only something to punish people. And actually, they have an ulterior motive there. Uh, The less energy they make available to the public, the more the public crawls to the government begging for more energy that ultimately has to be rationed. All of that will end. I don't give the anti-fossil fuel movement more than 10 years, but a lot of damage can be done in 10 years. And you're exactly right. It exists only with government subsidies, but they know what they're doing with these subsidies. They buy votes, they buy the idea of rationing energy. So it's gonna go on for a while but it is absolutely a terrible thing. But again, I want to repeat the fact it can never happen.
0: Mm -hmm. Jay, I had a quick question for you. When you look at the events in Texas from February 2021, in which 700 people died, because wind power, which was providing most of the power for the state failed. And then of course, they had the extreme cold period. Do you see that it's going to be necessary for that to happen over and over across the US before people wake up?
1: Well, I think we will not see that extent of a a blackout that lasted as long as it did and affected as many people. What we will be seeing is brownouts and blackouts all across the country, which are less damaging, but the public will wake up to the fact that they are a result of depending on more and more wind and solar in our electric grid, which are undependable and shouldn't be there in the in the first place. So it won't be quite as bad as we saw in Texas last February, but in quantity and volume, it will increase dramatically. I think we're going to see it with the uh, hot spells this summer, but particularly when cold weather sets in around the country where the electric grid is depending more and more on undependable wind and solar.
0: Bob, what role do you see President Trump playing after the Republicans take the House in the two years before the next presidential election? Do you think it's possible he might be the Speaker of the House? Or you might well, run? I know that
3: I know that uh, the Jay and others have dreamed of Trump being Speaker of the House, and obviously you have to run and be a a member of the House, I believe. There's a way you can do it without that. But my just overall sense of of 22 and 24 is, that the Republican Party needs to look forward, not backward, and that the Republican Party needs to get younger, not older. Certainly, I was describing what Zuckerberg did in Wisconsin. The election in Wisconsin was not not honest. Uh, The election in many places wasn't honest. But those elections, I believe, are now in the past. And I think that any time that I spend, I want to be spending time on trying to very, very directly help Republicans running for the Senate win a Senate majority. I think we're gonna win a congressional majority. The Senate majority is, is up for grabs. And we've gotta look at places like my state of Wisconsin, uh, but also Jay's state of Ohio and Pennsylvania and Nevada and Georgia and Alabama and Arizona. I mean, these places are gonna make the difference. My own personal feeling is is I want to be going toward 2024 with the idea of winning elections, not with the idea of re-litigating, if you will, the past election. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump is clearly the leader of our party right now. And if you and I were to go to Wausau, Wisconsin uh, today and sit down in, in, the, in, the, in the local diner or in the local bar or go to the, uh, the softball game and ask people around us in any of those places, what? Um, who do you like for the Republican nominee for president? Uh, they will say Donald Trump. And uh, they, they have a very high regard for Donald Trump. And I think many people across the country have a high regard for Donald Trump's policies. I mean, the fact we didn't have inflation, the fact is we didn't have the problems in Ukraine, the fact is we didn't have so many of the issues and problems we got, including energy. We were energy independent just a couple of years ago under Trump. So, I mean, the the fact that the policies of Trump are are not the question. The personality of Trump is the question. We're watching the personality of Trump on these January 6th hearings, which I think are largely just a a kind of a showboating of of politicians trying to, you know, get their own attention. I don't think it's going to make much difference to the election. But the point I I want to make is I want the process on the Republican side to get younger, and I want the process on the Republican side to get to look to the future for 22 and particularly 24.
0: So the ideal role for Trump would be as a support person for people like Ron DeSantis or others.
3: Now, we've got a couple of good examples. I mean, he got involved in Alabama. Alabama last night, Katie Britt won. That was a complicated race because Mo Brooks and some others were involved. The fact is we got through that. We've got a very strong candidate. It's a Trump endorsed candidate. The Trump pact and other groups are going to be putting money behind her. And we are going to win Alabama. I mean, that wasn't going to be close, particularly close anyway. Richard Shelby was leaving, retiring. And now we've got a strong candidate there. There are other states that we're going to be able to have strong candidates. I want President Trump to be playing a a positive role. I want him also to look forward with me, look forward to 22, look forward to 24. If he's the candidate, I mean, I personally think he's probably too old. But if he's the candidate, I'll support him. But the big thing is that we need to win now, which is this year, this fall, in just a few months. Then let's worry about who our candidate's going to be in 24. But we've got a couple of examples. Virginia's another good one, where the party and the candidate and President Trump all worked together for a Republican victory. And Glenn Youngkin is doing a terrific job as governor of Virginia. We've got to get through the mess we've got in, in Georgia right now. We've got a couple of messes going on in Arizona. We've got other places. We've got to make it through these primaries. My hope is that Trump endorses good candidates and those good candidates win. And uh, well, but I want to go forward. Last week was a
1: huge success story for conservatives. As you know, the Supreme Court handed down three victories for conservatism abortion, gun rights, and prayer. What role do you think they will have? Now, we've seen them protesting out in the streets in a terrible, terrible way uh, with some of it. So we know what the reaction has been and will continue to be with the most liberal among us. What do you think the reaction is going to be with those of us who tend to be conservative, and Republican and being even stronger in support of the future.
3: Right now, I think there's a, a very narrow margin of people, maybe less than 20%, who are the extreme liberals who are going to be influenced by the abortion decision, and maybe possibly a little bit by the gun decision, although much less. And then there's a group on the right, maybe about the same number, 15 to 20%, that are primarily interested in, in those issues. The other 60 or 70 percent, the middle, is interested in the economic issues, a little bit in the energy issues, certainly inflation and uh, the cost of living and national defense, and importantly, crime. Don't forget about crime. And I think that those issues are going to be more important than the issues recently decided by the court. I think conservatives, frankly, kind of breathe a sigh of of relief and a a sign of of kind of hopefulness, because this has been a court that has been to the left of the American people and has been a court that's been trying to make decisions in Washington or make decisions in in the courts, as opposed to making decisions by elected representatives at the state level, which is where most decisions should be made and, in my judgment, must be made. But I think the court decision overall is going to be kind of a wash If anything, it's going to encourage conservatives to continue to participate. Obviously, a Republican Senate makes a big, big difference. Biden is still president for two more years. A Republican Senate can block a Democratic nominee. I mean, we can't be careful enough about how important it is to have a Republican Senate after 2022.
0: Mm -hmm. What do you think of Biden's use of executive orders? I mean, On his first day in office, he put out, what, a dozen of them or something? Yeah, he's trying. And
3: I know, you know, the last couple of presidents have done this. This is something that Bush did. This is something that Obama did. This is something that Trump did a lot. And Biden's doing as much. The fact is that you can put out executive orders and you can have that press conference. But the executive order really doesn't mean anything close to a law that's been passed by the House and Senate and signed by the president. So I think Biden is using executive orders as press conference material.
2: Mm. He's
3: trying to show his people, he's trying to do something. I'm fighting for you. But in fact, most of the executive orders that he's issued are only dealing with issues on the margin. And I don't think he's been particularly successful either in getting the publicity about the executive orders. And I don't think his executive orders have changed the law in any meaningful way yet. Do you think that he would
1: could actually run again in two years, and you know that would be wonderful for the Republicans, for anybody to run against Biden or Kamala Harris. <laughs> what other name is, uh, some other name would seem to have to surface beginning in January when the actual run for the presidential election in 2024 really begins in January after the uh, House and Senate are seated?
3: Well, I think the, the, the people around Biden are surprised. Um, but but uh, my understanding is that Biden still is saying he hopes to run for re-election. He's saying that to people close to him. I don't think he's able to do that physically or mentally. And I think more and more people are aware of that. You've read the David Axelrod piece and some other things that in which Democratic leaders are saying how important uh, Democratic leaders are, are saying that the age issue is very is too important and he should not run. It's hard to predict uh, who's going to come through the, the Democrat. On the one hand, you can look at the same group of people that were there a couple of years ago. You can start and work your way through Yang and work your way through Buttigieg and work your way through Amy Klobuchar and kind of go right down that line just the way it was in your view. And uh, look at, look at the, all those people are running right now. The way you run for president is you start off with a group, small group of people around you and say, okay, we're running for president. And then you run until you can't anymore. You run until you lose money. You run or you run out of money. You run until you lose support. Uh, if you can't get the endorsements, if you can't take support, but you run until you give up. It's not as if you start running from nowhere. I mean, Yang is running right now. Amy Klobuchar is running right now. The person that's running right now that I think has a good chance who is so to the left, it's hard to believe, but the governor of California, Newsom, is running and is said to have the beginnings of a strong finance group around him. I can't believe that the Democratic Party would go that far left, but uh, Newsom is a candidate that more and more people are talking about because they look at that picture that I just tried to have you envision of the 2,000 candidates, (laughs) and it doesn't look too good, the, the, uh, the picture of a couple of years ago.
1: I just wrote an article that I think appeared today at americaoutloud.com about California, about essentially the demise of a once great state following a Marxist revolution within the state. I can't imagine Newsom running successfully on his record in California. The state is a basket case and it's going to only be worse two years from now. So whoever runs on the Republican ticket only need point to what Newsom has achieved in California. It's all bad.
3: I think it's important not to discount how far to the left the Democratic Party has gone. The first step for any of these candidates is to get the Democratic nomination. In other words, among Democrats, they're going to pick their presidential candidate. And it's clear that the Democratic Party is becoming more and more left-wing, and it's possible that uh, he could fit. that he probably will have is money. He's also got a good look. He's also got the right age. And you could argue that people are going to be attracted to him. Remember, this is not the national election. Now, what you just said is really important. And I agree with you that he's way, way, way to the left of the average voter in our country. And that could be good for us. If we nominate a solid candidate, and he is our opponent, we've got a good chance for another George McGovern kind of race. Those kinds of races that we look to in the past as being just, you know, complete
0: wipeouts. And that mm-hmm. could happen. But, Some people uh, are talking about Hillary coming back. What do you Well, Hillary's
3: talking about Hillary. And <laughs> the people around Hillary are talking about Hillary. And, and Hillary is trying to get on TV talking about Hillary. And Hillary's writing novels talking about Hillary. And uh, she's just like I described, she's running for president, and she's got people around her that are supporting her, and she's gonna keep running until she can't. But uh, my judgment is that there are enough people in the Democratic Party that don't like her now, and that are gonna be selfishly backing somebody like Kobachar or Buttigieg, that Hillary is gonna run out of steam earlier rather than later in the process.
0: Our interview today has been with Bob Kasten, Jr., former Wisconsin state senator and also representing Wisconsin in both the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives, talking about intelligence, the Russia situation, American election, all kinds of stuff. So thanks for being on our show, Bob. Thank you very much. Okay. This is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.